efforts with us. I'm very grateful for that. Actually, today and in the next four weeks, we have guest speakers. And that, in part, is to highlight some of the local relationships that we value as a church. These are partnerships for which we are grateful and which we are seeking to cultivate. I asked Jimmy to preach this morning first as a friend, but also as the Pillar Network lead in our area. You might recall Pillar Network is one of the two groups with which we are exploring a more formal affiliation. So after the service today, we're going to have a Pillar Network question and answer time with Jimmy. And Joshua's going to organize us after this service for that. I think it's going to be down here, if I'm not, uh, not incorrect. So yes, down there in the shade. I want you to be aware, though, that Joshua and I have been attending monthly meetings with, led by Jimmy with other either Pillar Network pastors or those interested in the Pillar Network. And they've just been a blessing to us. I want you to be aware of that for how how Jimmy's service is helping Joshua and myself. We've been attending these monthly meetings with very like-minded pastors, which is just so refreshing. And it's reminded me of the, the help, the, the strengthening influence of having fellowship with other like-minded pastors here locally. So Joshua and I have been helped by that. We're grateful for Jimmy. I want you to welcome him in just a moment, but first, Mindy is going to read to us from God's Word in the book of Exodus, part of the passage from which Jimmy will preach. God's Word. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land, 
But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The reading of God's word. Jimmy, welcome. Thanks for being here today. He told me. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. He told me that, exactly. He said, do not do that, and I did it. Good morning, brothers and sisters. How are we doing this morning? It's a joy to be with you. It's a privilege to be with you. I'm here by myself this morning. I, I typically try to come with my wife and uh, four kids. They make me look better. They bolster my character and all the above, but they're not here this morning. But I want to say that I'm joy, uh, it's a joy to be here with you. The, the Hill Church does send you greetings and love. I do care for and love your pastors, uh, at least Joshua and Tab, that I'm getting to know more and more. And one of the reasons I love them is because they love you. When I'm with them, they speak of you, they pray for you, they're laboring together trying to serve you. And I love men who are doing just that for the local church. So thank you for the opportunity. There's no such thing as untested faith. Missionary Elizabeth Elliot knew this truth all too well. Born to missionary parents in 1926, a passion for taking the gospel to the nations was really forged in Elizabeth at a very young age. A brilliant student in college, she mastered the Greek language with really a desire to translate the Bible on the mission field. But while in college, Elizabeth met a young man named Jim, who after serving a short time together in Ecuador, would ask her hand in marriage. And Elizabeth, she agreed. But she agreed upon one request. She said that together they would have to learn the Ecuadorian language and commit themselves to serve the Ecuadorian people on the mission field. So in 1953, their marriage began upon this commitment of faith, which would soon be tested. Jim, Elizabeth, their young daughter, and four others would head to a remote part of Ecuador to engage an unreached people group. But as many of you are probably very aware of, just two short years after getting married and committing their lives to serve the Lord overseas, Elizabeth would bury her husband Jim after being killed at the hands of the very people they were trying so desperately and praying to reach with the gospel. At age 30, Elizabeth found herself a widow in a foreign land, trying to raise her daughter amongst the very people who had taken her husband's life. And after a, after a season of, 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 of deep discouragement and dark distress, she somehow found the faith to remain in Ecuador and continue faithfully serving and filling out the call that she had committed herself to. And God honored that commitment. After years of engagement through many dark nights of her soul, the gospel would bear fruit. Many came to faith in Christ, even some responsible for her husband's death. Faith often works this way. It's a pattern we do find in our Bibles. When you step out in faith, things often get worse. 
Following Christ doesn't mean the avoidance of physical suffering, emotional strain, spiritual battles, and everything else common to us in this fallen world. We should expect to experience loss, disappointment, and seasons of spiritual warfare when we commit to follow Christ. Our faith will be tested. Obedience of faith never promises a pain-free life, but it does produce the soil upon which true faith grows. I want to show you that this morning from Exodus chapter 5, 6, and a little portion of 7. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5 this morning, as you can tell, we're going to read a large passage of Scripture. So it would be helpful. Make sure you have your Bibles open and run with me through this text. But before we dive in, I want you to consider a question this morning. But it's a question I want you to notice first. It's, it's not an if question. It's a question of when. When difficulty and discouragement comes, how will you respond? How are you to battle difficulty, discouragement, and distress in your life when it comes? Because it will come. Well, here's what I hope we learn from Exodus chapter 5 this morning. This will be my main ideas as well. It's this, that as God's people, we battle discouragement by resting in the promises of God in the gospel. So I want to show you this morning from Exodus chapter 5 into verse 7, that as God's people, we battle discouragement and distress by resting in the promises of God to us in the gospel. Let me give us a precise but pure prayer this morning quickly. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, please make us. By your word, through your spirit, in your son's name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, much has taken place leading up to Exodus chapter 5. The book opened on a rather bleak note. The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt when the, book's, when the book begins, and God seems absent. But though he seems absent, God is never inactive. In spite of the Egyptian oppression, God demonstrates his faithfulness by multiplying and establishing his people in chapter 1. Furthermore, he preserves the life of a young man named Moses who will be called to lead his people. But he will have to learn to lead first. So, through, so though Moses was born prince of Egypt, God graciously turns Moses into a humble servant through a time of exile in the land of Midian. And it was there in the land of Midian, tending to sheep, not his sheep, his father-in-law's sheep, Moses was confronted by the great I Am in chapter 3. The holy, eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in fact, commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh and lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. But in his fear and insecurity, Moses immediately begins making excuses. Who am I? What shall I say? What if they will not believe me? Oh, my God, I am not eloquent in speech. Chapter four, verse 10, finally resulting in Moses saying in chapter four, verse 13, oh, my Lord, please just send someone else. But God graciously and patiently turns Moses' attention away from himself and towards him and his sovereign purposes at work in Moses. Moses would have to step out in faith. 
alongside his provided companion, Aaron, and he would have to do so to embrace the Lord's call to stand before Pharaoh. And Moses would. He first, com- and he first has to communicate his plan to, his, to the people of Israel, who in fact agree. And the, the end of chapter 4, the final verses that leads up to chapter 5, we find these beautiful words. And the people of Israel believed, and they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel through Moses, and that he had seen their affliction, and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Guided by the faith of Moses and Aaron, chapter 4 ends with the people believing, obeying, and worshiping the Lord. What a beautiful picture. So now this morning in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron have to put feet to their faith. As we all must do as well. And they must go stand before Pharaoh. So as I said, we're going to cover a lengthy portion of Scripture this morning, but we're going to do so under two simple headings. The first one is this. Divine distress is what we need to see first, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, chapter 5 begins with Moses and Aaron responding in obedience to God. Verse 1 reads, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Just as God promised, Pharaoh's hard heart won't hear it. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, it's probably incorrect to interpret Pharaoh's response as meaning he's never heard of the name of the Lord. Rather, it's simply a rejection of the authority of Yahweh. His language is very dismissive here. Oh, he had heard of Yahweh. He just could really care less about it at this point. Now, this question, who is the Lord, really guides the entire book of Exodus. Moses asked this very question back in chapter 3 at the burning bush. Who are you, Lord? And now Pharaoh, though in a dismissive way, asks a very similar question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Both Moses and Pharaoh are about to learn the answer to that question. But they will do so in two entirely different ways, with entirely two differing perspectives. One will know Yahweh as the divine judge. One will know him as the merciful redeemer. Both true, but both have an eternal difference between one another. Moses and Aaron respond in verse 3, Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. There seems to be a belief that, that Pharaoh doesn't, uh, if do- Pharaoh doesn't let them go, it will be bad for both the Egyptians and the Israelites at this point. Now, while we know Moses is a, is a long, has a long way to go if we're following his journey of faith, we must not also miss the faith that Moses gives us here. right? So he's gone from overwhelming insecurity trying to talk God out of using him, to now standing before the mightiest man on earth at this time. Egypt was the superpower, and Pharaoh was to the nation a god among men. In terms of human civilization, Pharaoh's power was unmatched. And Moses, with with his sketchy resume, his speech impediment, and all his insecurities, is here standing alongside his brother, making the unthinkable request to Pharaoh. 
Moses has truly stepped out in faith. And that faith will soon be tested. Verse five, Pharaoh will have none of this. But in verse five, it says, but the king of of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. Pharaoh boils over with anger at this request, leading him to to try and squeeze out of the people all the work he can and force them to loyalty to him. Pharaoh's concern here is not spiritual. It's economic. There's a lot of these people and they're making him money. And he wants to make their life even worse. Verse six, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foreman, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let, a, let us go and offer sacrifice to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pray and pay no regard to lying words. So the tax masters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will give I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? The people of Israel now find themselves in a terrible place. The straw probably used as the binding agent necessary for brick making is no longer provided them, making the process much harder, much slower. Yet they got to produce the same quota. This would be like having to frame a house and also make the nails. Verse 12 describes the people frantically scattered all throughout Egypt, trying to gather what's necessary to complete this task. And then to top it off, the Israelite foremen are enduring beatings. Look, it's super hot, much hotter than I am right now. Temperatures in Egypt are often over 100, not to mention the fire necessary to make these bricks. There's no OSHA handbook here that Pharaoh's concerned about following. The people are exploited, exhausted, dehydrated, with many probably dying of stroke. All this cruel extra work was meant to break the people's spirits and steal any idle time given to dreaming about being set free from slavery. So the Israelite foremen go before Pharaoh to ask, what's up? Why the change in policy? Why the harsh, impossible treatment? Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Pharaoh's response, you guys are lazy. And and then he throws the request of Moses before them, exposing what's really behind this whole thing. Verse 17. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks your daily task each day. 
So the people now know Pharaoh's anger and impossible treatment is the result of Moses and Aaron's request. So they lash out at them in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The people need someone to blame. So it's Moses and Aaron. And as you guys know, we read the rest of Exodus. This becomes a recurring theme. Specifically, they say, you have made a stink before Pharaoh. We are a stench before him. Because of you, we're going to die. The people rebel and blame Moses for what's taking place. And Moses responds to God with the same fourth force which with, the, which with the people responded to him, crying out, why? Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses cries, why? I've done as you have said, yet things are worse. Why, O oh Lord? Moses is in distress because once he finally stepped out in faith, the situation just has become awful. And he begins to question everything. He begins with the goodness of God. My translations read, why have you done evil or caused evil? Other translations include, why have you caused harm to your people? The cry or the accusation is that God has brought about undue harm to his people. By allowing Pharaoh to act unjustly. Moses is saying, God, I have done what you have asked of me. And yet look what has happened. He questions the goodness of God, but he also questions the purposes of God. Why did you send me? Other translate. Uh, he says here, in other words, I, I told you. I I've already told you this, God. I I'm not the right guy for the job. You won't listen to me. And then he even questions the faithfulness of God. You have not delivered your people at all. I came in your name, doing what you said to do, and look at things now. Now, we can point to the lack of faith in Moses here. God had revealed himself as the great I am. God had promised he would rescue his people. And he, in fact, told Moses he will harden Pharaoh's heart. So in one sense, Moses shouldn't be surprised. But if we are honest, doesn't Moses remind us of us? Moses was a man in desperate need of God's mercy and grace, like each of us. He found himself, while seeking to follow God faithfully, in a moment of deep distress leading to a crisis of belief. That's really funny, Tab. The temperature is so hot. My iPad died. No, no, I'm good. Moses, as me, finds himself in a situation of deep distress. But doesn't Moses remind us of us? As we consider here and think about Moses, we should be careful to continue to think about how Moses aligns us to us. 
so as we maybe maybe you've made a commitment to follow the Lord. And then you walk into the boss's office to hear him say, we're going to have to let you go. Maybe you've made a commitment to, uh, to begin serving your spouse more and only to hear him or her say, it's over. You're doing everything you can to serve Jesus and yet your child becomes ill. Tragedy strikes. You lose a loved one. Why, oh Lord, why? Have you been there? You see, we can, we can sit in the chair of self-righteousness this morning and simply critique Moses. We can do that. We could also enter into this narrative, enter into the journey of faith that God has Moses on and learn what it looks like to put our feet to faith in a fallen world. Don't miss the opening line here of verse 22. What does it say? Look at it. Then Moses turned to the Lord. And said, Moses takes his distress, not to Aaron, not to the people, not back to the desert, to Midian, but to God. And nowhere in this narrative do we find a rebuke by God in response to Moses' honesty here. And that's important. There is a world of difference between complaining about God and taking our complaints to God. The first is sin. The second leads to faith. Moses is in distress, but Moses is in a divine distress. God allowed this to happen. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the text says. God is testing Moses' faith here. God is fitting Moses' faith for the future. There's a raw honesty and a, and a lament of the soul necessary to the life of faith that, model, that Moses models here. And it's one we find all over the Bible. One of my favorite psalms, I just preached it a couple weeks ago, is Psalm 13. Pinned, we don't know for sure, but pinned by David most likely when he's either on the run from Absalom, his son, or from Saul. David had been anointed as king. He stepped out in faith to lead the people and everything went awry. Talk about distress. Maybe if it's his own son trying to kill him. Or the former king. The, the king himself still, in one sense, still trying to kill him. Talk about discouragement, and yet David cries out just as Moses does here in Psalm 13. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider, answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David learned from Moses, I believe. Look, we can critique Moses' lack of faith here. But in our critique, let us not miss the model Moses provides. Moses takes his lack of faith to God. He doesn't turn to Aaron, to the people who try, to the people and try to explain this away. He doesn't go back to the desert. He turns to God, fully dependent upon him. And his response allows for the forging of his faith. We need to learn from Moses here. We need to learn, we need to learn uh, what Moses learned. Take our distress to God. 
David learned from Moses that the answer to our distress is found in the in the promises of God. You know, David ends Psalm 13. Not in a cry of lament, but in a cry of trust. That's what real lament does. Lament leads to trust. He says, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. And it's this transition from distress and an honest cry to God in faith to the promises of God where our text now goes to in chapter 6. So now we move from divine distress to divine promises. Chapter 6 begins with a strong contrast, but... But the Lord said to Moses, so Moses says to the Lord, now the Lord says to Moses. So, and there's so much truth residing in that simple contrast. The answers to the problems of our lives, the remedy for the distress of our soul will never be found in the words and wisdom of man. But in the word of God and his promises to us in Christ. But the Lord says to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. This word now shouts of the sovereignty of God here. Every event thus far, including the sufferings of the people, speaks to the sovereign hand of God executing his saving purposes through his people. The stage is now set for Moses and the people to see the glory of the great I am, which is exactly where the Lord says what the Lord says in verse two. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, I want you to notice something here. God doesn't really answer Moses's why question, right? I think we need to hear and see that. To follow God faithfully, you and I have to accept the fact that we will probably be left with many unanswered whys in this life. God is not interested in answering all the particular whys of your life in this fallen world. Why, we should ask. Because he is interested in something much more loving, much more glorious. He is interested in building our faith by providing us a view of himself that is big enough and glorious enough to swallow up all of our unanswered whys. This is what he does with Moses, beginning in verse 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I will establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. The Lord says that while he appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, by the name, the Lord Yahweh, he did not make himself known back then. Now. This should cause us to scratch our heads a bit, right? Because we, we do find the name of Yahweh, the Lord, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And it, and it, in fact, does show up in reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what do we make of this? Well, it's not that the name is altogether new, 
but a, a better, maybe we could say, a more complete understanding of the name is being revealed. And how so? Through the great acts of God's salvation and rescue of his people, which is about to take place in Exodus. God has been known as the El Shaddai, the all-powerful creator and sustainer, but now he will be known as the Lord, Yahweh, the God of grace and the God of redemption. So for the rest of our text this morning, beginning in chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord provides detailed content as to who he is, as to what the name of the Lord, Yahweh, means through a series of promises he makes expressed through these key I will statements. In the midst of Moses' distress and discouragement, in the midst of Moses' unanswered whys, God reveals the beauty and the glory of who he is through a series of glorious promises which land in our laps this morning. Promises which speak directly to the gospel this morning. Promises each one of us need to hear. The first one is this. Beginning in verse 6, our God delivers. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. God promises, I will bring you out, and I will deliver you from slavery. While it would require the mediator Moses, God would be the one to rescue, deliver his people. And by what means? Solely by his grace, through faith. The people will do nothing to earn it. In fact, God will do this in spite of their lack of belief, in spite of their grumbling at every step, in spite of their moaning all along the way. God will deliver his people out from under the mighty hand of the strongest nation on earth. And all the people will have to do, as it says later in the text, is watch and see the glory of Yahweh. God delivers. But our God also redeems. Verse 6 goes on, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. One, one theologian points out very clearly here, there is no more basic word in the Bible than redemption. And brothers and sisters, we find the first reference of it here in our Bibles. And it's tied very importantly to the, the making known of the name of Yahweh. The God of the Bible is a redeeming God. The God of the Bible is a God of redemption. This is the mark of Exodus. This is the way in which Yahweh is making himself known. Redemption carries the idea of purchasing or buying back. We know that. But in the ancient world, it also entailed or communicated the, the notion of a, of a privilege or, or the duty of a close relative. As one author points out, the Redeemer was a member of the wider family who acted to protect the family when they were in some type of trouble. For instance, if a member of the family was murdered, it was the Redeemer's role to see to it that the guilty was brought to justice. Or if a family member fell into debt or was forced to sell their land, a Redeemer, a kinsman protector, would take responsibility to purchase the land and keep it in the family. If a man died, and if a man died without a son to inherit his, his, his uh, property, it was the kinsman Redeemer's job to take care of the widow and ensure their heir. Right. We see this beautifully play out in the in the book of Ruth with Ruth and Boaz. What God is saying here is that he is the ultimate redeemer. He will redeem his people. He will buy them out of slavery. He will stand in their place. Yahweh, the great I am, will take it upon himself to defend, to avenge and to purpose and to purchase his people's freedom. God redeems. 
But God also adopts. Verse 7. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This promise can be seen spanning the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God draws the people out of Egypt. Why? To draw them into himself. Into an intimate, familial relationship. It speaks to the doctrine of adoption. While God has already called them his sons back in chapter 4 verse 22. Here he promises to make Israel his people. So our redemption speaks of rescue from slavery. Adoption speaks of the coming family. God will be to them a father. Israel will be his treasured possession among all the earth. God adopts. But God also provides. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God is promising that he himself will provide for his people. He will receive a possession. They will receive a possession or inheritance. While they may leave Egypt as empty-handed slaves, they will not remain as such. Their identities will go from slaves and orphans to sons and daughters with an inheritance. This will play out under the leadership of Joshua as, they, as the people enter, conquer, and take the land as an inheritance. God provides. Look, Exodus is the story of the God who is making himself known. We just studied the book of Exodus for about six months at my church, and this is the theme under which we studied it. All throughout the plagues, all throughout uh, the book of Exodus, you hear this reiterated theme that God will make himself known among the nations. To walk by faith as the people of God is to know God as he reveals himself. As deliverer, redeemer, the father of his people and the ultimate provider. That is the story of Exodus. Which forms the, the, backbone, the backbone of the Old Testament narrative going forward. Now, if I'm honest there, when I preach through the book of Exodus, there are some places where you had to do some heavy lifting to get to Jesus, to get to the gospel. But this ain't one of those places, brothers and sisters. Exodus is meant in every way to point us to Christ, God making himself known through his son. God is our deliverer and redeemer in Christ. Colossians 1.13 tells us that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, God defends us. In Christ, God avenges us. In Christ, God purchases us from our slavery of sin. And he adopts us into his family through Christ. For we know that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, Ephesians tells us. And he is our provision in Christ. Peter tells us that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Brothers and sisters, how do we battle discouragement and distress in this life? We rest in the promises of God to us in Christ. We are to rest in the gospel. We must believe the gospel. We must sing the gospel. We must share the gospel. We must meditate on the gospel. For it's in the gospel we come to know who God is. And it's in the gospel that we come to know who we are in him. Now, in 
Verses 10 through 13, God tells Moses to go back before Pharaoh, but Moses again falls into his old ways of doubt and insecurity. Verse 12, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. The most likely reference is to his speech impediment, maybe, or him believing his mouth to be unclean to speak before the Lord. Moses is here desperately trying to give up again, but God won't allow it. He will instead provide Moses with another promise in chapter seven. We're going to look at in just a minute. Before we get to that promise, though, the text seems to go on somewhat of a detour with this genealogy here. Now, I know you'd like me to read it or maybe I should call up Tab and have him read it. Right. That'd be better. But I'm not going to do that. Uh, And for the sake of time, I'm not really going to address it much, but its placement and very importantly, what is not listed in the genealogy is very important as it speaks to the faithfulness of God in using Moses and Aaron in spite of all their failures. So it speaks directly to the faithfulness of God. Well, let's look at this final promise here that our God judges mercifully. Verse 1 of chapter 7, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. In the face of Moses' distress and lack of faith, God reminds Moses of who, in fact, is in control. These uh, first five verses testify that God alone is God. Moses needs to see this and walk in this truth as we do. And notice that Moses is God's divine representative here. We see that. Pharaoh is considered God, but here God puts Pharaoh under Moses. Moses will be God to Pharaoh. This doesn't mean that Moses was divine. It means God, that Moses represents God. Moses learns the truth that God humbles the proud, but God exalts the humble. The proud Moses in Egypt was humbled to be a shepherd, but now the shepherd has been exalted before the mightiest man on the earth. And Pharaoh, in his pride, will be brought low through God's judgment in the plagues. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God's glory is displayed in both his judgment and his mercy. Egypt will know the name of Yahweh through his judgment towards them and his mercy towards his people. We know Uh, This has nothing to really do with an ethnic distinction here. The book of Isaiah 19 tells us that many Egyptians will be part of the people of God. They will believe upon the Lord. Now, this has everything to do with faith. There are two ways to know the Lord. Experience his mercy in the gospel or experience his wrath and his judgment. Everyone will eventually acknowledge he is Lord. Everyone will either be drowned in the waters of judgment in terms of Exodus or washed in the blood of Christ. There is no middle way. 
The God of Exodus is a God committed to making himself known through both his judgment and his mercy. And he makes himself known in Exodus just as he makes himself known in his son. So do you know him this morning? How do you know him this morning? Do you know him as your deliverer? Your redeemer? Or are you awaiting to meet him as your divine judge? The gospel is very clear, brothers and sisters. God is holy. God is righteous. And you are not. And I am not. <clears throat> there is an eternal chasm that separates us from a holy God in our sin. And God will make himself known as both the righteous judge and the merciful redeemer. He is full of wrath. And judgment due sin. But he's full of grace and mercy to sinners. This is the story of Exodus. And this is the story of the cross. That the cross God poured out his wrath. Not on Egypt. But on his son. But not for his son's sin. For our sin. But at the same time as he pours out his wrath and his judgment on his son. He extends his mercy, his grace, his love, his forgiveness in his son to us. Until we see Christ on the cross receiving the due justice for our sin. We cannot receive the redemption graciously offered to us in him. How do you know him this morning? Merciful, deliverer, gracious, redeemer, loving, rescuer, or divine judge? The answer to that question is, do you know his son? Do you know Christ this morning? If not, what keeps you this morning? Brothers and sisters, how do we do battle with difficulty, discouragement, and distress in our lives? Is anyone here immune to it? I've been there recently. Dark nights of the soul. Again, this is not an if question. But when it comes, how will you do battle? What weapons will you take up? Take up the promises of God, brothers and sisters. Take up the promises of God, which are all yes and amen in Christ. Will you take them up? As the people of Israel looked back to the Exodus, we look back to the cross. In this fallen world, as we follow Christ, discouragement and distress is sure to come. But as we wait our Savior's return, we stand with the people of God, resting in the promises of God in the gospel. And there may be no better place. Guys, there is no better place to do that than at a local church with brothers and sisters in Christ partaking in the Lord's Supper. And I think Brother Pastor Tab is going to come lead us in that shortly. Let me pray and close out our time. Great God in heaven, you are an awesome God. Holy, majestic, righteous in every way, and we are not. We are 
mere men and women, sinners at that. But for those of us who know Christ, we are saints who have been delivered, redeemed, rescued, adopted, given an inheritance. And we are those who can stand with feet as the people of God looking back to the cross of Christ and rest in the promises that you've given us. And Lord, I I do pray today as we reflect about life, as we reflect about what it looks like to follow Jesus in this world, we would take up the weapons that you've graciously given us. We would rest in the promises that you've given us in Christ, all of which we have seen have been fulfilled in the cross of your son. Lord, if anyone does not know you today, Lord, might you convict their heart. Might you place before them the chasm that sits before them and a holy God and cause their heart to run to Christ, to receive the grace and redemption you have for them in Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you now as we get to partake in the taking of the supper as a display of the gospel in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.